0: Ladies and gentlemen, I must warn you that today's show is the suckiest show that I have ever done. In fact, it's about people that suck. People that suck big time. People that suck blood. It's about vampires. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America.
1: Watching America? All my life. It's panic in America. Oh, 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 oh. There's trouble in America. Oh, 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 oh,
2: oh. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America.
0: As a child, I was fascinated with an American show called Dark Shadows. Jonathan Frid played the vampire Barnabas Collins. Later, I discovered Bella Lugosi. And finally, Bram Stoker's version of Dracula. Today's show takes a similar odyssey. It's a journey that has been embarked upon by millions of Americans. Now, as a caravan, us collectively, travel these roads together. Were it not for the nature of this particular program, I probably would have started with Pharrell, because I'm happy. Because my producer, Paul Bebo, one of the most knowledgeable persons on the planet about Dracula, I should tell you a bit more. He has written extensively. He's written for Mademoiselle magazine, Men Q&A as a columnist. He's also been an assistant editor for Maxim, and he has also freelanced and written for the likes of The Washington Post, The New York Observer, and Men's Journal. But his most interesting work, which I have devoured and absolutely love, is a book entitled Sundays with Vlad. It is a humorous book. It is well written and on par, and I mean that, with other travel books that I've encountered. In fact, I will even assert that it's extremely, extremely not only entertaining, but informative and jocular. Well done. Paul Bebo, welcome to Watching America.
2: Yay! He's Yay! here. He's in the room. Now not, I should explain that. you. Yeah.
0: Like, I just want everyone to know what you do. You do so much. Um, you come up with so many inspired stories and ideas. Oh, and when I look you. at the canon, dare I say that word, of the stuff <laughs> that we've done, I say, there's a signature here of creativity, and that belongs to Paul Bebo. Oh, thank thank you, you so very, very much. I have to ask you, um, you grew up in, a, in a, an interesting time where horror movies were available on regular television. Uh, I've always wondered since – well, not always wondered, but since reading your book, if you subscribed or bought copies of Fangora. Do you remember Fangora magazine? I do
2: remember it. Actually, you know what? Yep. My real uh, – uh, what is it? Drug of choice? Okay. Let's say, <laughs> by, is actually the the old comic books that would be like horror comic books, yes. like almost like Tales of the Crypt before yes, it became yes. a movie, before, before it, it became, became a TV show, a TV series. Yes, the idea of these these horror comics, like I loved them, and I loved um, short stories by like Ray Bradbury and Edgar Allan Poe. That was my big thing in was- junior high. You would find me. In the junior high school library, maybe this is partly because I didn't have enough friends, right? But <laughs> you would be, find me reading Ray Bradbury and Ed Allan and post stories. That I can was... imagine
0: you with a copy of The Illustrated Man reading it. Oh, right? yeah. yeah. And all that stuff, yeah.
2: <laughs> or like um, S is for space, the, yeah. the kind of, or long, I still can remember it, Long After Midnight. It's a collection by Ray Bradbury of the real short, chilling stories. I, I love I just them. love the title of yeah. the
0: anthology in and of itself, Long After Midnight. I that's know, great. isn't it? That, that's, that's amazing. I mean, it sounds that's like a ballad. You know? I know. It is. <laughs> well, uh, in your prologue of your book, which is entitled Sundays with Vlad, um, you really just do a fantastic job of establishing who you are, your style, what we can anticipate, and, and you never disappoint us throughout the entirety of the book. In the prologue, which is entitled Monsters on the Brain, you talk about being, of all places, at Bucharest Airport, and we want to know, inquiring minds, what were you doing at Bucharest Airport? And it, it seems very evident that you were in some kind of jeopardy. And, and not only that, but you have a lovely wife called Anne, Anne. which you subjected yes. to this to this torturous endeavor. Explain.
2: Yeah. We found ourselves at Bucharest Airport. It was um, the fall of 1999. We had gotten married about a week before. And we were on our honeymoon to go to Castle Dracula.
0: Now, would... now, did you, did you, I mean, that's a very unusual recipe. Yeah, You're like, okay, it is. We're, honey, we're going to get married, and I'm going to drag you, you to see, a dark castle. But you have an affidavit to prove that it was actually her idea.
2: Yeah, except w- when you get into the affidavit, she <laughs> admits that it was in fact her idea, but there were several facts that I kind of kept from her about the the trip to castle dracula and part of that ends up being the the what is it the beginning of the entire book the genesis yes. of the book which is that the location of castle dracula like the location of dracula itself is up for debate yes the place i took her to was the historical fortress of vlad the impaler not the castle that bram stoker put in his novel, in the Borgo Pass in Transylvania, which doesn't actually exist. It's a thing it, that he created, like so much else, and we'll talk about that. By the time you get to high school, yeah, you are an avid Dracula
0: fan. Yes. I mean, uh, beyond the norm. I mean, yeah. you, you are con- consuming uh, a lot of material that you can discover, and you become quite knowledgeable. And so in high school, um, you have an opportunity to take a unique course, which essentially, from what I've read, you're able to design yourself.
2: Yeah, it was an independent study course that they offered to some people in my high school. And what I wanted to do was a kind of a documentary-type slideshow of... And, and this by this point, with my sort of interest in vampires, mm-hmm. it was very much about the folklore of vampires. It wasn't about the literary vampire. It wasn't about um, the, the movie vampire. It was what did people in different parts of the world, actually believe that we would call vampires, right?
0: That's the budding journalist in you coming through. I think a little bit, right? scratching beneath the surface. Yeah,
2: and, and there's something about, for me, the mystery is to find a place where you can say, okay, this is no longer a story. This is something that people actually believe. Now, that's not the same thing as saying it's real, Right, but you get as close as you can to the mystery of it because yeah. here, is a, here is a thing that people in some village somewhere really thought was true, and that fascinates me. I must ask, what was the initial
0: inception or awareness of vampires? Was it a particular—I mean, was it reruns of Dark Shadows, the TV series, or, or was it a movie? Was it Christopher Lee? Was it Bella
2: Lugosi? Who I, was it? I bet, and I'm not positive— but I bet it was the Count on Sesame Street. Really? Yeah, because that one, was one, two, two, three. All right, exactly. <laughs> Who is, by the way, the Count as envisioned by Bella Lugosi? It's, Absolutely. And this yeah. is part of my book: is this exploration of identity, of the identity of this, of this thing that we call Dracula and how the identity uh, shifts and changes over time. So uh, now you, you're in high
0: school and you, you're doing this studying, and yeah. actually you are so proficient in your knowledge that you
2: actually are presenting at the local library Yeah, I gave with adults a, coming. Yes. Now, to, I thought it was very interesting, right? But I, in the end, like looking back on it, I, I could have gone much, much deeper into it. But I did have a great survey of the different vampires of the world the, you know, the rakshasas of India who drank blood through the feet. Or yeah, the, can you explain that? Right. I mean, that, that, that that really got me. Uh, oh, yeah. They, okay, they, these they suck these... blood out of people's feet when While they're sleeping? You're sleeping. Yes. yes, okay which you think about that. That's I that's don't know if terrifying. I want to. <laughs> yeah. And then there's a kind of thing called a vetala which hangs upside down, and, and I think that's from India as well. There's an ancient Assyrian monster called the Akimu who you know it's it's not clear exactly how he destroys people but he can he can appear in a house at night and destroy people now at the time while I was discovering all these things what I didn't hit on and what what later became evident to me is that at no point did people the people of India or ancient Assyria necessarily call this A vampire, quote unquote, right? Right. The word vampire is a it's it's from upir and then before that I believe it's uber. It it has a very specific Slavic root that ultimately goes back to I believe a Turkish word for witch. Okay. The word vampire has a very specific cultural and linguistic history, but the idea of a creature that uh, comes in the night and draws um, sustenance from other uh, other things. That's universal. And in fact, that's that goes back to, to prehistory. They've found prehistoric skeletons which have been tied up in some way to keep them from rising from the dead, right? So yes, yeah. So there are elements of what we now think of as the vampire that have always been with us as long as there have been people. Fast <laughs> forward to
0: yes. marriage, okay? You marriage. get married to the beautiful Anne, yes. right? And um, you decide that you're going to have a honeymoon.
2: And we both love history. So we thought we're going to go to Eastern or Central Europe, depending on what you call it, right? And we're going to go to wonderful, beautiful cities, right? So mm-hmm. we started talking about Prague mm-hmm. because Prague's lovely. And we right. started about Budapest and at some point, we had a conversation about Romania. And, and I swear to you, she brought it up. Because in her book of, of the Let's Go Guide to Eastern Europe, we ended up going to what they called Castle Dracula. But actually, more, more historically, you know, accurately, you should call it Vla- Vlad the Impaler's Fortress. Okay. In other words... Explain who Vlad the Impaler was. Ah. Vlad the Impaler... And he was only, you know, he was only called Vlad the Impaler by his enemies. He himself actually signed his name Dracula. He was a prince or boyar uh, who ruled Wallachia and Transylvania, but mostly Wallachia in the latter part of the 15th century. And he was very brutal. He he did impale people, right? From from what we know. He so fought, it's a suitable title. Oh, yeah. 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 Vlad Sepesh is yes. what they call it, right? Yes. And then yes. Sepesh is the, the, the impaler. And the Turks, I believe, called him like Kazikulu Bey, right? Which also means the impaler. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So he was ruling a tiny hockey puck of a state that was between the sort of Holy Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. and the ottoman turks mm-hmm. who were trying to invade europe and so he was in this area that was constantly shifting and constantly being invaded and reinvaded so as a ruler he ended up being very brutal to maintain control okay and he built this fortress in the south of romania in wallachia that has nothing to do with the with the bram stoker's you know dracula he built this fortress up at the top of this mountain, and as a result, in guidebooks, they call it Castle Dracula, because that's the, the real historical fortress of Vlad the Impaler. Will you say here Dracula's castle, or ruins, Right was a colossal disappointment.
0: Yeah. How'd you handle that?
2: So when we decided to go, it seemed like it would be this fairy tale you know, adventure. yeah. And what you realize about, and this was, and you got to remember, this was 1999 Romania. The revolution had happened 10 years ago. Southern uh, Romania, because it was closer to Bucharest, was the site of a lot of communist uh, building projects made with this, you know, cruddy communist concrete. And they ended up, you know, crumbling. There was a lot of bad infrastructure. We ended up, Taking a train that took forever to go to a town to wait for another train that took forever to right and yeah. and it, and the romance of our trip soon just, soon waned it just wan- like waned and a half right and yeah. there were I remember there being packs of feral dogs just running through the streets and and looking at me. And just, I could see she was rethinking all the decisions that she had made up <laughs> yeah. until this point, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, I was...
0: So if there was ever was a time that your marriage was in jeopardy, it was that week. It was really that weekend. <laughs> yeah.
2: And I remember, you know, having this moment. We made it to the town of Kurta darjish and we were in this hotel where the lights were all off because the... The electricity was kind of spotty, and the mattress was kind of sunken in the middle in this way that it just—it didn't seem like a normal mattress. And the two of us were just filthy and sweaty, and we're <laughs> on our honeymoon, and we're yeah. like, "Yeah, okay, we're just lying there, like not like she—she's thinking of leaving me." Yeah, like it's the this, thought that I'm thinking. This is not right? happening. Yeah. And then in the in the background, we can hear, and it's it's Transylvania. We're near quote unquote Castle Dracula. You want to think wolves, right? right. But instead. I- yeah no, it was li- it was little dogs yipping yeah. at each other. It was the feral dogs okay. <laughs> outside, and we thought, we'll die. I, we, we might die here. Yeah. we might die, and even if we survive, she the marriage, you might, might want to die anyway. Yeah, yes yeah. <laughs> the next day after staying the night in that hotel, we got a trip out from a sort of the a cab. So the guy drives us out to a parking lot and you know gets out, lights a cigarette, and points to the woods. And we, and, and, and What's you What's that see, supposed to mean? Well, this is, right. Yeah. And so I look at the, wood, and there's this tiny little, like a, a couple of stairs, and they lead into, I don't know where. It just, it disappears into the forest. And so Ann and I start walking toward it, and we keep looking back at the, like, is the, ca- we keep looking back at the cab driver because I keep thinking- Is he going to take off? Is he just going to leave me yeah. and we're going to be devoured yeah. here, yeah. right? We got on the, the first step and we- we start walking, and it is, I, I kid you not, it is 1,500 steps up the side of a mountain. The staircase zigs and zags, and it goes all over the place, and the stairs are missing in some places, and you just, you lose sight of where you've gone, and you you lose sight of where you're going. You are in the middle of these woods with a staircase just going through it, and it is is—it is a 45-degree incline at best. Wow. Now the legend is supposedly that after Easter Sunday Mass one night, Vlad the Impaler seized the members of that village yes. as they were coming out of Easter Sunday church, and forced them into a press gang to build his fortress up the side of that mountain. And it makes you think the the, the enormous uh, the, the enormous suffering that must have gone into building this. Uh, this... I've got two simultaneous questions Please. going on in my
0: mind. Okay, well. Regarding Vlad the Impaler, um, he makes people coming out of mass uh, build build this 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 means and way of getting to the pinnacle of of this this mountain. Okay, um, there's always this image in popular concepts of Dracula with the crucifix and the and, and the cross and what have you. What was Vlad the Impaler's attitude towards the church or
2: Catholicism uh, at this time? He was his father was a member of a holy religious order to protect Catholic uh, Europe from the Ottoman Turks. And that's how he got the name Dracula. His, his father's name was Vlad Dracul. And the reason he was called—Dracul was kind of an epithet, right? The, mm-hmm. the, a descriptive name like Alfred the Great, right? Or, you know, Edward the Confessor. right? And the reason was because he was inducted by the Holy Roman Emperor King Sigismund— okay into the order of the dragon and the symbol of the order of the dragon was a was a dragon impaled on a cross and the dragon okay. represented the devil Right. But the dragon also represented the um the ottoman infidels his father became vlad dracul and dracula was very proud of his father's induction so he Well we're going to talk about name. Bram Stoker yeah, yeah, in a exactly. moment
0: and we're going to talk about if you will the schism between uh, co- yes. connections but is that where Bram Stoker got the use the usage of the idea of the crucifix?
2: No. No. That's the thing. Okay. The only thing
0: that— And just for people who may not know, because we have a very young audience, which I'm happy to have as well as an yeah. over-mature uh, uh, audience. Bram Stoker is the person who wrote the novel Dracula. Now, we, we need, kind of need to turn there. But before we leave that, let me just go very, very quickly. Once you got to the top of the pinnacle, what did you find?
2: A pile of bricks and an angry wife. <laughs> And that's
0: it. We'll move on. Was was the taxi driver still waiting for you when you got to? He was. Oh, thank heavens.
2: The Romanians are the nicest people. They're the nicest, most honest people in the world. They really are. I can't say enough good things about them. I love it. Okay. So now, okay, now
0: (laughs) you come back to America and you decide to write this book with your vast knowledge uh, um, that you've acquired uh, on the subject. Most people learn about these events through the novel by Bram Stoker uh, of Dracula. He's an Irishman. He's an Irishman who eventually becomes a Brit, okay? He's an Irishman who comes becomes a Brit who gets aligned with an actor and comes to America to Philadelphia. A lot of things happen. Explain this.
2: He was a personal assistant. He came from a family of, of sort of loyal, like Anglo-Irish people. He was an office worker yes. at his heart, right? Yes, and right. And he becomes kind of the personal assistant to a man named Henry Irving, who at the time was the Kevin Spacey of his generation or the Christopher Lee of his generation, a great actor who was known for villainous roles. Henry Irving was one of the most famous people of his time in his place. Mm. He had played all kinds of uh, Shakespearean roles, Mm -hmm. right? He was known as the great Henry Irving, the actor. Right. So Bram Stoker between 1890 and 1897, is following Henry Irving between London, Dublin, and Philadelphia, and, and other points where right. Henry Irving was, um, you know, he was, he was acting. And so Henry Irving was being feted by the locals. He was brought from one place to the other. He was, ma- he was making the press. And meanwhile, in the background, in some of those articles, they'll refer to his assistant, his man, Right. Rom Stoker, you are thorough. Golly, oh, thank you. I know.
0: Everyone in this building knows you are completely mm-hmm. thorough. And, and, ladies and gentlemen, I have <laughs> to give credit to people. You know, say, oh, you know so much. Well, it's dependent on my wonderful producer here, who uh, informs me of so many things. And extremely grateful. But because of your thoroughness, you wanted to go to original documents like all good scholars and journalists do. You go to Philadelphia, you find these works. Now, how did these works come about for a while?
2: How were they discovered? Because it's only been fairly recently. Yes. And in fact, that was part of the problem with the connection between um, the Stoker character of Dracula, right? Mm -hmm. And the historical Vlad the Impaler. Because people began to write about the connection, quote unquote, between Dracula, the literary Dracula Mm -hmm. and the historical Dracula before they discovered the notes that were sitting in a box in Philadelphia up until the early 1970s. So by the time these notes were discovered and people really began to dig into what Bram Stoker knew about the historical Vlad the Impaler, the the myth of the connection between the literary Dracula and the historical Dracula had already been cemented. And the reason for that was that there were a couple of books that were written in the 60s and early 70s that basically said that Bram Stoker knew X, Y, and Z, you know, Uh about the historical Dracula. And and he kind of didn't. In fact, the notes, the reason we know what Bram Stoker knew and what he didn't know is that Bram Stoker took such um, meticulous notes so we know what books that he actually read to, uh, to research this figure of Dracula. And the only piece of information that he knew about the historical Dracula was that he knew that there was a guy named Dracula in Transylvania who fought the Turks and was thought to be savage. What he didn't know was that uh, Vlad was known as an impaler of mm. people. He didn't know any of that. He did not know that Vlad was even Vlad. He didn't know the man's first name. But by the time that those notes were discovered, there had already been documentaries and and books written about how Bram Stoker must have learned that there was this this you know boyar prince named Vlad who impaled people and and and, and so as so a result
0: in, in in the common vernacular we yeah. could say that uh bram stoker just went to town yes yeah with his imagination <laughs> right okay and let's talk about the romantic elements of it now first of all yeah. before we go there
2: what was it like gaining access to the oh yeah original author looking at the looking at the original notes it's It is amazing because it's very rare that you can see a document that tells you a specific thing about what someone was thinking, right? Mm, Yes. What we're usually doing is we're looking for clues as to what someone was thinking. Yes. And in the case of the Stoker notes... It's kind of a literary archaeology. Yes. And what you find out is that Bram Stoker sketched out the outline of an entire vampire novel before he ever learned that there was a person named Dracula. And the reason you know that is because he didn't name his character Dracula at first. Mm. He named his character, and this is terrible, this is a terrible name, but he named him Count Vampire, Vampire
0: Which is, you and know... And originally it was called the Undead. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. And the
2: Hutchinson edition, which is a, the edition that was right before the Constable edition, you know, the, the first edition, very first edition, you know, has that subtitle, The Undead. And some of the earlier versions had the castle blowing up, like we're in a Jerry Bruckheimer movie, right? Wow. <laughs> right. Like, which is, a, here's here's what happened. We, you got to remember that Dracula was written between 1890 and 1897. Mm-hmm. And by that point, there was a very developed body of literature about vampires and about monsters there was a there was an Irishman named Sheridan Lefanu who had already written this book about vampires called Carmilla mm-hmm. um, the the Frankenstein novel had been written somewhere between like 1818 and the early 1820s mm-hmm. by Mary Shelley yes and during that famous weekend that Mary Shelley was uh, was sketching out Frankenstein uh, John Polidori was sketching out a uh, um, a story called uh I think it's the the vampire right about lord ruthven mm. who he based loosely the the legend goes on lord byron okay and so you have a vampire literature developing for yes for for like 80 years before bram stoker does it Okay, and so Bram Stoker is not the guy that invents the, the gothic vampire yeah. novel. Yeah, and in fact, before he gets to Dracula, before he discovers Dracula, his novel is very wooden, and it's and it's not all that inventive. He set the he set Dracula in Styria, Austria, which is the birthplace, incidentally, of Arnold Schwarzenegger, instead of Transylvania. Interesting, yeah, yeah. and it was also the. Location of the Carmilla novel. Like, in other yeah, words, he set yeah. the—he he he did a knockoff right. of these other vampire well, stories. What, what
0: are the facets that are directly attributable to uh, innovations uh, by Bram Stoker?
2: Oh, the one thing that I would say, most of all, yes. his use of the form of the—I guess we would call an epistolary novel. The fact that the novel is a collection—it's not—there's no one— overarching uh, narration. Mm -hmm. It's a collection of journal entries and newspaper articles and letters from one person to the other. I think that is the most fascinating part of it because it's what it becomes is a series of shifting tales that are all linked to each other. And then there are some descriptions of these tales being compiled in other tales. In other words, someone will write a letter to someone else and then someone will talk about, well, we took that letter and we compiled it into the larger account, right? Yes, yes. And that is fascinating because what Dracula ends up really being about is the slipperiness of our stories. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, there's one in which um, Dr. Seward, the, the person who runs the lunatic asylum, is dictating notes ...on a wax cylinder, and he talks about the fact that he is dictating the notes on a wax cylinder.
0: Like an early dictaphone.
2: Yes. Dr. Seward is dictating these notes on the wax cylinder in the lunatic asylum, and it's been pointed out by scholars that as you read that, you must be thinking about the voices mm. that, are, that are wafting through the halls yes. that might be making an impression on that wax cylinder. And then, of course... We take his account, and the account gets put with other accounts, and and so those voices get lost, right? If you're just joining
0: us, you're listening to Watching America, and it is my great, great delight and pleasure to have my producer, Paul Bebo, producer of Watching America, talking at length about that which he loves. And that's, well, amongst other things, Dracula and vampires. He's written articles for men, Q and a for Mademoiselle magazine. He's been an assistant editor for Maxim. He's written for the Washington post and the New York observer and men's journal, but he is also the author of Sundays with Vlad, uh, which is an examination of both his excursion and his wife uh, on this whole unraveling and understanding of the myth and historical merit behind the whole concept of Dracula. Um, Let's go now to you as an individual, okay? okay? After this, this journey, this, this labyrinth that you've, you've walked, and you uh, have returned to the United States, what was the most fascinating thing you discovered?
2: Afterwards, with the Dracula, with yes, the, with the yes. searching of Dracula. I think afterwards, w- the most interesting thing was that I then went back and tried to write a Maxim article about the failure... Of a, of a theme park that they had built in Transylvania.
0: Now, I saw some pictures, which you include yes. <laughs> in the book. It's There's a, a little, little underwhelming, as yeah, one says. Yeah, it is, isn't <laughs> yeah. it?
2: Well, here's what happened. In in the early 2000s, the, the Romanian government and several um, business leaders were looking for a way to um, drive up tourism in Transylvania, and somebody had the idea to build something called Dracula Land, Right and that would be built in Cg Swara, which is a wonderful um Saxon village mm. in um in the middle of Transylvania and it just happens to be the birthplace of the real Vlad the Impaler the historical Dracula Yeah I mean the commercial uh, possibilities are boundless. Yes exactly. But you notice that every time I mention Dracula when I talk about Romania I have to I have to say whether it's the the literary Dracula or the historical Dracula. That's true. And the problem is all of the sites for the historical Dracula are kind of in the south of that country. And all of the sites for Stoker's novel, were, where Stoker never went, by the way. Bram Stoker never went to Transylvania. Did he just look at paintings? He looked at this entry in a travel guide. They've been saddled. the The poor Romanians have been saddled <laughs> with this story that yeah. this Anglo-Irishman wrote in the yeah. 19th century. Yes, yeah. and then in the 1970s, all these and 60s, all of these Westerners show up and they want to see the the Dracula's castle. And these Romanian peasants, they want to make money off them. I mean, you can't blame them. <laughs> no, right? no, no. Of course. So C.G. Suara, the the Dracula land. Yes. Was a kind of uh, continuation of that. Let's let's bring people in mm-hmm. and show them dracula right and they couldn't decide whether to build a historical park that showcased the historical dracula yes or whether to literally build a vampire theme park like you know six flags over the over right. the revenant yeah. corpse right i yeah. mean they couldn't decide and that was one of the reasons why the the project ultimately foundered and, and, and investors kind of shied away. And there were other aspects of that. The infrastructure wasn't there for tourism because C. G. Suara at the time was a very small town and, it, you know, and the locals had mixed feelings about having thousands of Goths descend on, <laughs> on them. Right. So it fascinated me because it showed that the Romanian people who were in possession of this cultural artifact that is is—it's it, it, connected to one of the most famous villains of all time somehow couldn't, and this is, I'm being a yank here, right? I'm being yeah. a money grubbing yank here. They couldn't make a I buck off it. Right? I love people like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm looking at it and I'm yeah. like, why can't they make a buck off this? Yeah, yeah. And in a way, they, you know, it's partly because what they had was the historical Dracula, and it was very different from what Stoker Stoker, and then ultimately Bela Lugosi and Universal Pictures and all that had created.
0: You did a lot of interviews, uh, and you did pop interviews of a sort, for instance, with uh, Bela Lugosi Jr., yeah. and uh, you have suggested that we do this on the show. In the next segment, we're going to be talking to Bela Lugosi Jr. I know. I'm
2: really excited okay. about
0: that. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this, because people are going to wonder, you know, yeah. uh, your favorite vampire or vampiress. So would it be Elvira? Will it be Christopher Lee? Will it be Bela Lugosi? Um, will it be Vincent Price? Who, in your estimation, Ooh. is the reigning, superb
2: Dracula? Okay. If you're going to talk about the the person with the most impact, yes. it would have to be Bela Lugosi. Now, that's not... Absolutely. I'm not answering your question quite about my own personal feelings. You should right? go into politics. Right, exactly. <laughs> but because Bela Lugosi created... And he personally created, this wasn't a universal thing. Bela Lugosi, he personally created the image of the vampire and recreated it in a way that it had never been done. And it will never be the same. I mean, because first of all, he brought his own cape, that was his cape, you know, that he, he brought to right. you know to yeah, his stage yeah. roles because he'd later done the, uh,
0: exactly. He'd done it on stage in New York and everywhere. Yeah. And,
2: and and so the and he also created perfectly the the urbane and romantic interest type vampire. Mm. Um like it, Well it, it is sexy. I mean that's yeah. one thing we haven't talked about. I mean this this
0: whole I mean, even as a child I I, I got caught up in like Oh it's kind of nice isn't it to yeah. be Dracula you've got these women in in their negligées in, in the long <sighs> negligées and candles and wax burning and you you get to get close to their necks right. and it's kind it's of it's not
2: yeah it's, it's, it's not hard unpleasant. to miss that no <laughs> yeah. and in fact Dracula the the original universal Dracula was released on Valentine's Day yeah oh wow and okay. and the tagline was the strangest love story the world has ever known you know Ooh, that's good, and this yeah. was very different. Now, my yeah. own personal favorite vampire, okay, here we go, has always been Nosferatu. Oh, of course, which was the yeah. knockoff art. and This is this, this tags me as very NPR, that's, <laughs> the, that's like the art house vampire, yeah, right, exactly. Right? He it was F.W. Murnau, the director of um, yes. Nosferatu, got into a fight with the um Florence Stoker, mm. the widow of of Bram Stoker and the controller of his legacy. Yes. She would not allow him to make a movie based mm. on on Dracula. Right. So and that's why all of the names have been changed and certain yes. details yes. Uh, the vampire in Nosferatu is destroyed by sunlight whereas um, the vampire in Dracula is destroyed by like uh, I think it's Quincy Morris's hunting mm-hmm. knife, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And even after all those changes a judge ordered all of the copies of Nosferatu to be burned and destroyed. And wow. they and they almost were, except one or two made their way to the West. And as a result of that, we still have Nosferatu.
0: We still have it. Um, I have to say, Paul, Paul Bebo, I'm speaking with, that this has gone by so very, very quickly. I, ha- I wish I had more time with you. You're one of the most wonderful people to work with I've ever known. You're the most uh, studious, thoughtful, kind, persevering tolerant of persons like me, and uh, moreover, you know how to work f- with a variety of personalities. And I'm going to say this, you never fail. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, my producer. Thank you so very much. Sundays with Vlad. That's V-L-A-D. Look for it. Get it. You won't you won't be disappointed in any singular way, and I mean that. So thank you very much, it, Mr. Bivou. It, it's Bivol. been wonderful. It's been wonderful. Sir. God bless.
2: God bless. See you.
1: I am Dracula. Dracula, the very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula, the original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat, and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula! I am Dracula. I bid you welcome. Listen to them. Children of the night.
0: There are various persons that, as a host, you hope that you may have the opportunity to interview. And for me, Bella Lugosi, Jr. is one of those names. He is indeed the son of Bella Lugosi. Some would say, in a sense, the son of Dracula. But he is also his own person. He is a loving son who is very attentive to the memory of his father and has been for decades. He's also a very successful lawyer. And like his daddy, he is a gentleman. So it is a great delight to welcome to Watching America... Mr. Bella Lugosi, Jr. Welcome, sir. It's wonderful to have you here.
3: Thank you, Alan.
0: I want to ask you, first of all, um, your daddy was far more than Dracula. And I think sometimes, even though I'm sure you're appreciative of the fans, millions as there are all over the world, do you sometimes wish that people had a broader perspective of your father than just that singular role?
3: Yes, uh, I do think that his role in its entirety is something that has never been fully developed. And people would be amazed at all the things that he has experienced and that he has he has done. And fortunately, we've got some very good biographer friends revising and editing a biography on Dad. It includes pictures of all sorts of... Uh, characters that he's played, not, not just Dracula.
0: Well, he comes to the States and eventually uh, he does secure work in silent films. Uh, in 1923, he worked for Fox Films in a, uh, in a, a movie called The Silent Command. Uh, in 1925, he did The Midnight Girl. And uh, by 1927, he's offered a role on Broadway, which will be the signature role of his career, Dracula. And he started that at the age of 44. Did he ever share with you um, if he was nervous initially about taking that role on? I mean, he essentially created the image that we all have now, the lasting image of of Dracula.
3: Well, that was an image that's created uh, before the universal motion picture, Dracula. And uh, as you say, his, his signature role. But he perfected that starting in 1927 on the stage.
0: And he was initially very hurt, I understood, because they weren't considering him, at least Universal Pictures was not considering him for the role, and he wondered, why aren't they looking at me? After all, I was very successful for four years on Broadway.
3: Oh, yes, and and, he he lobbied for that role and wrote letters and uh, campaigned to get that role. And it's something he wanted because he already perfected it long before on the stage.
0: Well, he finally won and he, he got the role. And uh, he has made the signature imprint on everybody's mind, everybody's psyche of the, if you will, the, the consummate, complete Dracula in most people's minds.
3: A lot of, a lot of imitators, you know, they, they, they try to capture the, the look and the feel of my dad's portrayal. But no one can ever achieve the duplicate.
0: When you bore the name, as you still do, Bella Lugosi Jr., it's a name to be very, very proud of. But was it ever difficult for you as a boy uh, oh, when you were in school? Oh, sh-
3: oh sure. When you're, when you're a school-age kid, you want to blend into the lockers. And I didn't like standing up because everybody knew the name, even way back then in the 60s. And... Um, that's been something I've carried with me, and I try to be more anonymous, going by Bill Lugosi, but that wasn't working, so by the time I entered law school, I was all going by Bill Lugosi.
0: He was completely a gentleman, and uh, as I said initially, uh, that certainly has rubbed off on you, because you have a very gentlemanly manner and demeanor. Were you conscious of holding up the, the Lugosi name, everywhere you went and with everything that you did?
3: Well, you know, there's a legacy there. And my mission, daughter Lynn Lugosi-Sparks, who you talked with, her mission is to preserve that legacy. And uh, there isn't a day goes by, virtually, that somebody doesn't recognize the name. His recognition is, is really universal.
0: I'm very interested in your mother your mother was quite a beauty and um, she was 20 when she married your daddy and uh, they fell in love and she was extremely dedicated to um, your father uh, through difficult times. Oh, and, yeah. and they were,
3: they were married 20 years.
0: They were married 20 years and she was a great support to him. I mean, you know, when, when sometimes there wasn't film work for him, uh, she was a tremendous support for him and... Um, did she ever talk to you about your dad? Did she ever say you need to understand this about daddy?
3: You know, we we did have discussions along those those lines mm-hmm. because you know she took very good care of dad. Yes, and uh, and she was, she was conscious that he is becoming part of the culture uh, in the United States and one of the pioneers of the motion picture genre, particularly the horror
0: genre. Eventually, your mother and you, uh, not only for yourselves, but for the purposes of other offspring of famous stars and personalities, decided to go before the Supreme Court of California, dealing with the issue of the rights of images and publicity to various stars who had not actually given those rights away. And um, the idea of of the family um, having a rightful claim to their lineage and to, in your case, uh, your daddy, Bela Lugosi, as he appeared in posters and in books and in illustrations. And his, his image is ubiquitous even today. You see it everywhere. How did that work out?
3: That was my stepmother who joined with me to sue Universal Studios at the time. This is a case of first impression. There's, there's no, there was no court decision giving the publicity rights to a celebrity's name and likeness that survived the death of the celebrity. So, this is the first case to address that issue. And the court initially ruled in my, in my favor. Later, the appellate court, years later, reversed that decision. And it wasn't until years after that, in fact, 1984. That the legislature in California, turned it around again and established a statute in California called the Celebrity Rights Act, protecting the, the name and likeness for commercial purposes of deceased personalities.
0: And so in your case, was that uh, a grandfathered-in uh, clause that, that worked in your favor to this day? Uh, are you now entitled to compensation for your father's image? Oh, yes. That that must be wonderful source of security, I would imagine, for future generations. I mean, you may have grandchildren, and um, certainly that's helpful for things I like do. college. I mean, I... Yes. When when you think of the key thing that people don't appreciate, or don't when I say don't appreciate, aren't aware of about your daddy that you wish they were. What what is the key thing that you, you wish everybody knew about Bella Lugosi that most people don't?
3: Well, it's really the depths of the individual. You know, he was an activist on behalf of actors in Hungary in the 20s. He came to America. He's one of the founding members, I think, number 28 of the Screen Actors Guild and tried to get uh, actors in those early days to uh, join the Screen Actors Guild. As you mentioned earlier, he enjoyed all the finer things in life. He loved the. Cigars. Um, He dressed beautifully. He's a gentleman, Mm. although he had no formal education. He was very well read.
0: Yes, yes. As a young man and as a boy, what were some of the most treasured moments you had with him?
3: Really traveling with my dad uh, by, by, by automobile when he was doing summer stock. We drove across the country from California. And I spent a lot of time with my dad on that trip. And those are some of my most treasured.
0: What was the most important thing to your father?
3: Well, he he had a very strong work ethic. And uh, he was very well liked and regarded by all those on the set when he would perform. I was actually on the set when he made the motion picture called Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yes, yes. And, you And know, he could do a, a take in one take because he knew his lines so well. If that's all it would take. Other other actors in the movie, they would take multiples takes because they didn't have their character down right.
0: Like many good actors, your father had an amazing face. Uh, in one moment, he could be... Mesmerizing, terrorizing, but he also had a twinkle in his eye, which I've seen in pictures and still photographs, where he could be quite mirthful, uh, look quite jocular and and funny. Oh
3: and, yeah, and warm. That, that that came out in a motion picture White Zombie. Uh, it came out when he portrayed Igor.
0: He is beloved by people in England, and as you might guess, I am British, and he did a film when he was doing a stage play. Uh, over there he they they managed to sneak in a movie uh, about Dracula in London. Did he enjoy doing that one
3: yeah I, that was a very important um, chapter in his life when he went back to England because he was so well received
0: he 's beloved I mean he really is i mean he he still reigns high in in people 's thoughts about American cinema. And I think the British uh, were very inclined to see him more than just Dracula. Uh, they were aware of, of the fact that he was a, an actor with a large array of capabilities and, and, and talents. Oh,
3: sure. He, you know, he, he did romantic roles. He did Shakespeare, all the all the classic stage roles.
0: And now that you see your father still in films periodically, when you look at him, do you think of him as just dad or do you in any way, analyze his performances.
3: No, it's Dad. It's Dad. Yep. Uh,
0: well, your dad didn't pressure you to be an actor. Uh, in fact, you stayed pressure away me. from that.
3: Yeah. Uh, he stayed me away from that, that's right.
0: And, and what did he say about it?
3: Well, he thought that, that talent was not controlled by the, by the performer. Instead, it was agents and producers who uh, guided those projects and the actors really didn't have much of a say and he wanted me to be more independent and so encouraged me to get get some other profession.
0: If you could say to all the fans of your dad if there is something that we should take from the image of your dad and more importantly not just the image but the real man the real McCoy the person he was if your father was to give us Advice right now in his uh, unmistakable style. And I won't, I, you know, you're talking like this, as people always do. What do you think your father would say to the audience of this radio program right now watching America? What would be his his words to us?
3: Oh, well, my dad would want to impart the work ethic that he, he had. He said that was one of his strong uh, characteristics. Uh, He's also devoted to causes. He is devoted to America, where he was a citizen, mm. naturalized citizen. And um, he would also like people to know that he was always thankful for the, for the fans.
0: Mr. Bella Lugosi Jr., I want to tell you that I'm thankful for you. I am thankful for your stellar love, devotion, and kindness to your father. And it stands as an inspiration to me and so many other people. And really it is a testimony to love. So I thank you, sir, for honoring us by being a part of this program. It was one of my desires to get an opportunity to speak to you. And I am so very grateful you have fulfilled one of my desires and you have also moreover given us insight to not just a character, but a man. And in keeping with our promise to stay with you for half an hour, I also want to thank you for taking this time, because you talk about being a professional, your father was, and his strong work ethic, and it seems to me that you've worked very hard all these decades and years to be faithful to your father. And I thank you, sir, so very, very much.
3: Well, thank you for those words.
0: God bless, take care, and be good. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: Well, late one night in my studio, a ghoulish voice that makes sure all listeners know that it takes a production staff to make her show for both podcasts and the radio. Now for screens and horrors of concern, it takes an engineer like Todd Washburn. And if Dracula needs a blood transfuser, better call Paul Bebo as producer. They're the staff production staff. They do it with a laugh. They're the staff. They're the production staff. When Wolfman appeared, it was such a fright. Celia producer Gina Gamboni shut off the light. Then I thought I heard a zombie screaming out loud, but it was just executive producer Chucky Dowd. They're the staff. Production staff. They do it with a laugh. They're the staff. They're the production staff. And when Heather Marzoni cast a spell, she turned Bert Schmidt into a witch's well. Then Dr. Alan Campbell, creator and host, danced a twirly twist with our virus ghost. They're the staff. Production staff. They do it with a laugh. They're the staff. They're the production staff. Watching
3: America.
1: Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.